Welcome to the Spoken Gospel Podcast. Spoken Gospel is a nonprofit dedicated to the idea that every part of the Bible, Old Testament and New, is about Jesus. And this podcast is our experiment to publicly test that belief. Every episode, hosts David Bowden and Seth Stewart work through a biblical text to see how it helps us see and savor Jesus. Let's jump in. Well, welcome everyone to the Spoken Gospel Podcast. We are glad you are joining us as we start a new book today. Seth, how are you feeling? Feeling great. We are studying the book of Joshua. We are studying the book of Joshua. Which, at first, I was intimidated by. I'm still pretty intimidated. I still feel intimidated (laughs) by it. And um, let's let's do this. What were you intimidated about? Well, one, like the Holy War uh, commands and like the pretty standard, like, is God guilty of genocide yep. question, but also just uh, a ton of military language, which is not something necessarily I'm always comfortable with, especially when it's at the hands of God, which is connected to the genocide and yes. all those questions. But also Joshua is just one of those books that I feel like I grew up hearing a lot about in really like simplistic ways. Yes. Uh, I was like, be like Joshua, be strong, courageous, and go get him, Seth. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and so I was like, I felt like there was like a burden on me to like undo some of those simplistic, mm. re- like simplistic understandings of Joshua. Um, yeah, that's and, interesting. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of int- there's a lot of like big one-liners or or one-off stories that people pull out of this book. You know, yeah. it's like be strong and courageous, and then the story of Rahab and yeah. the marching around Jericho and, and the Gibeonite deception and the Gibeonite deception and the sun standing still. I have I ever told you about my. I shouldn't. Should I save this Gibeonite story for the Gibeonite podcast? Well, I mean, probably. Or should I drop it right and, now? And no, you should. You should also save it because now people will have to come back. Yes, yes, to yes. hear the Gibeonite. If you want to hear a story about how the Gibeonite deception relates to my first date, oh my! <laughs> you should now. Watch. I don't want to wait. <laughs> you certainly should tune oh, in. It's, it's gonna be like weeks. weeks until I hear this now. <laughs> Oh my goodness. Well, there you go. I've dug my own grave. Okay. Okay. Um, So I think it'd be helpful to just kind of position Joshua in the canon of scripture. Yes. So um, Joshua, if you read it straight, if you're reading the Bible straight through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua. Joshua, Sixth book. It's the sixth book. It almost feels like um, the end of the Torah. Like even though the Torah is the first five books of the Bible, um, the Pentateuch, um, it feels like it should be included. It in. almost feels like it yeah. should be a sixth because it picks right up where Deuteronomy left off. Moses dies in the final chapter of mm-hmm. Deuteronomy. Joshua takes over. Uh, Moses' death is referenced in Joshua 1. Joshua takes over and then does everything that God promised right. Moses would happen. Yes. And then the way Joshua ends is like a more wrapped up, you know, put a bow on it kind of ending for the story of the people of Israel that has been going on since Genesis. Uh so yeah. I did, yeah, and like yeah. even ties up the loose ends of like the bones of Joseph that yes. we heard all the way back in Genesis. In Genesis. Uh, we hear about Aaron and Azar again and yes. Phineas from like all just these pulling stories. on all these threads and tying them together yeah. and being like, and they were in the land. So that's just you know interesting. Yes, you, you can't. So I say all that to say you can't read Joshua without the Torah. Yeah, it right. will not make sense. Yeah, uh, and you won't get out of it what you're supposed to. 
And so it might be helpful to give like a really brief synopsis of like the book of Joshua like, or, or like the Torah, the Torah yeah, yeah, up yeah. to this point. Okay. So you have God and man living together in the Garden of Eden mm-hmm. and they get kicked out because of their sin and a curse falls on the whole world. So and even already right there. Yep. They were in a land. They were in a land with God. That belonged to the Lord and they were kicked out of the land because of their sin. Yes. Extremely important. Extremely important. (laughs) Uh, Yes. They build a civilization and a society and families and God chooses from among those nations of the earth, Abraham. Mm -hmm. Abraham's family grows and grows and grows um, until at one point in time they're enslaved to Egypt. Yep. Egypt is judged for their oppression of Israel and their um, like refusal to bow to Yahweh yes. and his plans for his people. Mm-hmm. He judges them. He kicks Israel out of the of Egypt, Egypt of yeah. Egypt, delivers it, them, redeems them, redeems them, and throws them into the wilderness yes. on their way to the promised land, which yes. is the land of Canaan. Right. Uh, and on the border of the land of Canaan, right before they're about to enter all the land we're about to read out in the book of Joshua. Uh, we, um, they fail. They fail. This they is, fail. The, this is numbers 12, 13 and 13, 14, 13 and 14. Yep. And they don't enter into land. Right. They send spies in the spies bring back a poor report saying they're, we're going to melt in front of them, that, that we look like grasshoppers to them. They're going to step on us. There's giants over there. We're all going to fail. The people rebel against Moses's leadership, mm-hmm. refuse to enter into the land and as a punishment for their sin, God kicks them out of the land of Canaan yep. and into the wilderness right. for a period of time. Until until that, that generation that failed to enter the land all dies in the wilderness, except the two people who uh, were among the spies who went into Canaan who said, hey, regardless of the fact that there are giants in the land, mm-hmm. we can take them because God's on our side. Yes. And these were... Joshua, Joshua and Caleb. And Caleb. So yeah. Josh, that same that Joshua. Is, that is this Joshua that is we're this reading Joshua. about. <laughs> so the Joshua who first spied out the land, said it was good and the Lord was on their side, is now the same one who's taking over after right. Moses. So the old generation that failed to enter the land dies in the wilderness throughout mm-hmm. Numbers. You read about this. The new generation takes over and... Um, and kind of Deuteronomy is Moses's farewell speech. And then the rains pass from Moses and the old generation to Joshua and the new generation. And they're back at the border of Canaan Mm -hmm. and they're about to hopefully we think take the land this time. That's exactly right. And all of this promise that God would have a people in his place under his rule would come true. Yes. And they would be kind of back in a garden of Eden. Yes. Yes. Be, yes, exactly yeah. right. So obviously there's some problems. There uh, is a bunch of evil people living in the land. Um, yeah, and so all the way back in Abraham, the covenant God makes with Abraham mm-hmm. in Genesis 15, he promises Abraham that his people will live in God's place again. Like yeah. they'll live in the Garden of Eden again, but they have to wait for all that period between Genesis 15 and the end of Deuteronomy. And it says this in Genesis 15, 16, that the Israelites will return when the iniquity of the Amorites is complete. Yes. So we don't quite know what that phrase means, but what we do know is that the reason, uh, part of the reason uh, why uh, they are about to conquer this land isn't simply, is not a, a, a political play. Right. It's because God is using Israel to judge the sin of Canaan 
and the Amorites. Right. Much like back in Genesis, the flood was used to judge the whole earth. Yeah. The, the armies of Israel are, are more of like the scalpel to the flood's hammer, <laughs> and they, yeah, are, yeah, yeah. they are cutting out this tiny portion of sin out of the right. land. Yeah, and so it's just really important to ground yourself in Genesis 15 language because it's about sin, mm-hmm. disobedience to the Lord. It's not about political battles. Right. It's not about landlust. Landlust. It's not about militarism. It's about the Lord protecting his land mm-hmm. from sin. In yes. the same way that Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden for their sin. Exactly. The right. same way that Israel was kicked out of the garden for their disbelief. The Amorites, because of their sin, are going to be kicked out of God's land. Yes. Evil cannot exist in God's space. Yes. That's and that's kind of the book of Joshua in the, the most meta yeah. theological level. Right. Like there is evil in the land and Joshua is coming to bring God's presence and his justice to that land. Yes. Yeah. So there's a ton of things we want to jump into here yeah. uh, to unpack everything we just said. Uh, and then we're going to go through the book like we always do mm-hmm. as well. So I'm excited to talk about this. The first thing we need to ask is, who is Joshua, right? Yeah. Yeah. Joshua is actually mentioned all throughout yeah. the book of Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. Yes. He is really, he's known as like... Uh, Moses' assistant. Assistant, yeah. Assistant is the word that's consistently used. But like he, a really close assistant. Uh, so like remember the story where Moses holds up his staff yes. and he defeats the Amorites or the Amalekites. As long as his hands are up, the battle yeah. is won. So Joshua uh-huh. was the general in that battle. So he's on the right. ground fighting while Moses is in the... Is is interceding. The, is interceding yeah. and praying. Uh, that's in Exodus 17. In Exodus mm-hmm. 24, when Moses goes up to Mount Sinai to speak mm-hmm. to the Lord, Joshua goes with him. Right. So Joshua has seen the face of the Lord yeah. along with Moses. This is a place no one was allowed to go. And it's yes. like, man, Joshua got to go up on Mount Sinai and see God? Yeah, Crazy. and even in Exodus 33, where we talk, or they talk about how Moses' face is shining when he goes into the glory of the Lord. Yes. It says this in verse 11, the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. And then Moses would return to the camp, but his young aide Joshua, the son of Nun, did not leave the tent. Mm. So while Moses would go out and lead, Joshua would stay and pray in the Whoa. tent. So he's a man who's gifted in battle, who has seen the presence of the Lord and the giving of the law. He is a man who also intercedes and prays on with Moses. And then, as we've already said in the book of Numbers, he is the faithful spy Mm -hmm. that goes into the land and believes the Lord's promises and says, no, guys, we can take the land. The God God is on our side. Yep. Yeah. I think he also brought the news uh, or like uh, like of of Israel's idol worship. Oh, um, in uh, in Exodus thirty or whatever. Anyway, whenever that's in they, my notes. At when least. they were like worshiping at the golden calf, <laughs> yes, he's the one who informed. Yeah, well, God originally told him, but right. I think that as he was going down, Joshua is singled out as not being a part of it, and he's instead one who's bringing the report, so he's not inculcated right, with right, all right. the sin of Israel. So that anyway. should clue you in as a reader. It's like the author of the Pentateuch knew yes. the book of Judges was Joshua. Uh, the book of Joshua was coming, yes, uh, and they knew Joshua would be Moses' successor. So as you read back yeah. through Exodus and Numbers. They do their homework to make sure you know that Joshua 
has consistently been portrayed as a faithful man. Yes. Um, and then as Moses dies, we're told a really important thing about Joshua mm. in Joshua in uh, Deuteronomy 34, 9. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom because Moses had laid his hands on him. So the Israelites listened to him and did what the Lord had commanded Moses. Mm. So the same spirit that rested on in Moses yeah. is transferred to Joshua and um, leads him, guides him, and like um, vindicates him or like a thought, like validates him, validates and deputizes him as the true leader of Israel, the spirit in the presence of the Mm. Lord guiding him. Okay. So that's Joshua and the narrative so far. Uh, Having thought about, knowing we're going to have this conversation. Yes. uh, And also we're not, I don't want to go into this because will steal from future episodes to okay. talk about all the ways that Joshua 1 through 5 repeats Moses's story mm-hmm. as Joshua yeah. to further validate the fact yeah, so, that Joshua is the new Moses. So what you're saying is after we have all these hints throughout Exodus yes. and De- Deuteronomy and Numbers that Joshua is a worthy successor a to Moses. Worthy successor. And then in the opening chapters of the book of Joshua, we see is the same stories that are repeat that Moses experienced happen under Joshua's leadership. Yes. A yep. sea is parted, right. like all the same stuff that right. happens. There's a Passover feast. Yes. They, like it all happens. Yeah. And like, and beyond that, like there's all the laws Moses received from God, jo- J- uh, Joshua fulfills. That's exactly right. And so here's my question that I'm just like, why is this so important? That Joshua that Joshua was the new Moses as uh oh like why like yeah that's true and right. it's good to see but why is it important uh because they're like part of the biblical story is this messianic line mm. like there is a faithful remnant within the world's population mm-hmm. that will provide salvation rescue and the fulfillment of God's promises okay right? so so like uh, as in like. Israel out of the nations, but mm-hmm. even within Israel, like in the spy story we talked about, yeah. Joshua and Caleb out of the other 10 spies. Yes, There's a faithful remnant inside of the people of God yeah. that are going to bring about the promises of God. Yes. Like okay, God okay. is always choosing Abraham. Yeah, He's yeah, yeah. choosing Judah. He's choosing... Uh, Jacob over Esau. Jacob over Esau to continue his promises to bring his people into his land and to give them rest. And he seems to be doing it by choosing specific people and leaders, mm-hmm. um, deputized with his spirit yeah. in this case, yeah, yeah, yeah. to lead and accomplish like his purposes for the world. Yeah. Okay. The, okay. The, the function of the repetition uh-huh. is to show you that God's plans and purposes are continuing in the life of the faithful saints. Uh, throughout the story. Okay. So this is why we always go back into the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob mm-hmm. and see all the repetitions. All the same sin patterns are there, but also the same stories of redemption and rescue are yes. there as well. So God's always doing the same type of thing with his people. Mm-hmm. He's always providing rescue. He's always providing leadership. He's always providing his spirit. And the uh, plagues that come like that attend Moses also attend Joshua. Right. What does that tell us? That God's doing the same thing. Right. He's rescuing his people out of slavery, delivering them into freedom, and giving them the land he promised to do. So like the repetition of the story should clue you in the fact that God is still acting on behalf of his people. Mm. He's still providing a leader on behalf of his people. He's still doing, he's okay. being faithful. So maybe there's, okay, so I don't, I'll say it like this, but I don't okay. mean it. So okay, it's right, like, right, right. it's not so much about the leader and more about the repetition of the story to show God's faithfulness. Yeah. But the yeah. other side of that is 
uh, I think there's something about leadership or headship or like, mm. couldn't Israel have just done this and like we didn't need to know about the general or like, you know, there's, but there seems to be this focus. And then moving into judges, right. the issue is there is no leader. You know, and like the yeah, judges yeah. are bad leaders, yeah. you know, and then it's not until King David sits on the throne that we have some semblance of what was supposed to happen under Moses and Joshua being repeated. Yeah. yeah. And so it's like, what is it about the Bible's fascination with an, a leader for Israel? Well, I mean, it's like part of it's like it's all humans fascination mm. with leadership. Like you don't have an organization. You don't have a group of people. You don't have a nation. Without a leader, you sure. don't have an organization without a CEO. You don't like, have a kingdom without a king. Right. You, the nature of people and groups is to have a leader who represents them, their values, their concerns, their mm -hmm. safety, and then fights for it, defends them for it, and tries to lead them forward. Like that's mm -hmm. just the nature of human beings together. And I think that's probably because it's the way that the Lord's structured society. Like the Lord has created humans to be ruled. Like he is God. And in the garden, he created Adam and Eve, and, and they yeah. reported to him like they were his citizens. He his also servants. made Adam and Eve like kings and queens. And then he deputized them mm -hmm. to exercise authority in the earth. Mm -hmm. So it's like authority uh, and submission to that authority is woven into the creation account okay. and like leadership in general. So I think it's like a human thing, but it's also divinely orchestrated. Yeah. Thing. So I'm hearing, yeah, I'm hearing like I'm hearing two things in the Garden of Eden thing that's really interesting. Like one is that uh, like God made deputized Adam and Eve as kings, rulers mm -hmm. over the land. He gave them dominion. There's all this kingly language. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the as they were fruitful and multiplied, as they should have, mm -hmm. they would have built an Edenic kingdom over which they were kings and queens. And so like in the very beginning of the story, the picture of what God wants for his world is that there would be a king and a queen ruling over his people. Yes. On earth. That is the Edenic picture. That's okay. the way it should be. Yeah. A good king and a good queen leading the people representing their interest yeah. in God's place and at rest right. in the land. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it, I, I think also it's like, I, I don't want to try to make my math go backwards. Okay. You know, I'm trying to like follow it straight through, but I kind of have to go forward to maybe go back. Okay. So clearly when you think about a leader for God's people who accomplishes purposes, who will um, like do what no one else will do and win for his people what no one else could win. You know, it's Jesus. Yeah. Like it has to be Jesus. And he is our king, our prince, our ruler, our leader who accomplishes for us all the promises of God that we never could accomplish for ourselves. Yeah. And he leads us into victory. Mm -hmm. Like... And the way, and uh, yeah. one of the ways we know that Jesus is God's appointed king mm -hmm. is because he, in his life, repeats the same stories we read about in Exodus and yes. Joshua. Right. He is in exile, or mm -hmm. he's not like he's a foreigner in a land. He's both God and man. He crosses the Red Sea. When, oh, he crosses the Jordan River. Yes. Like Joshua crossed yes. the Jordan River, and then. Paul or Peter will even say that when Jesus goes into the, the water and the skies rip mm -hmm. apart, that's like Moses and the seas splitting apart yes. to provide for the rescue right. of God's people. He's called a son of Moses. Yep. He, um, he goes into the wilderness for 40 days yes. like Israel goes into the wilderness for 40 years. Like he speaks to God. He has a sermon on the mount. Like God has a sermon on the mount. Like through Moses. Yep. Through Moses. So the Part of the way that we know that Jesus is God's appointed messenger is because God is using the same means, the same mm -hmm. storylines, the same rhyming type of history to 
show it, to yes. prove it, to yes. validate him right. as a leader. Yeah. I mean, and his name is Joshua. Yeah, we should say <laughs> like so. Jo- Jesus is actually the name Yeshua in Hebrew, which normally we translate into Joshua. Yeah, like in normal, like if you go met somebody, a Hebrew friend of yours, and his name was Yeshua, you would call him like his English name is Joshua. Yeah. So Jesus, What's up, is, Josh? Jo- Jesus is a like a Greek bastardization of yeah. uh, Yeshua. Right. And so really, yeah. Jesus' name is Joshua. It's just been back translated. Right. So yeah. like when we even when we talk about Jesus, he is literally his name is Joshua. Yes. Jesus. He is the successor of Moses who leads God's people into salvation. Yes. And into the land. Yeah. Yes, yes to all that. I think what I'm wrestling with here, mm-hmm. uh, and I mean, we know each other well. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no one loves a good repeated theme like the two of us in the Bible. We love a good repeated theme. So I theme. love that. I think it's true. I think it's beautiful that Moses and Joshua and the succession story we're seeing between the two of them as we open the book of Joshua should lead us to seeing the succession of Jesus as this new leader who is leading his people mm-hmm. into victory in the land. Yeah. That's just true. But I think there's something intrinsic about leadership, the general, the commander, the king okay. that is happening here that I think is good news to us is like just as Joshua led his people, Jesus leads us as as his people. He is, So do you mean like he is... The kingly Adam ruling yeah. over Eden. I mean, like, it goes back to my question: Why the focus on Joshua as the leader, the new Moses? Why is it important? It it it, it seems like there is a ethical or something value to ha- Israel having a leader. Why couldn't they just have gone in? And or if they did, why do we need to hear such a big focus on Joshua? I think the biblical author, I think God, is trying to show us something valuable about about a leader like mm-hmm. of God's people. And I'm just like, maybe I can't quite figure it yeah, out. I mean, what I keep thinking about is like, we need to be led. Yeah. Like there's a, a dependency talked about throughout scripture. There's a, a willingness to follow the authority of somebody else. Normally like the Lord's authority yeah. over our own personal authorities. And especially now, like our te- our temptation is to be our own authority mm-hmm. to our, our autonomous decisions um, about our body, ourselves, our God, our King. That's what's like what I want for myself. Um, but what the story of Joshua does when it highlights these leaders is saying, no, 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 we being led is the way we experience salvation. Not leading ourselves on our own, but being led yes. does that. Yeah. Yes, I think you're right. I think we were made to be led. I think that's like the deputization that happened at Eden even was man ruling under God's rule. And I think that's what's happening. And what was so unique about Moses's leadership that needed to be succinctly and definitely passed along Mm -hmm. was the fact that he talked to God and communicated what God said. Yes. Would Joshua do the same? That's the question. Is would Joshua be a theocratic representative? Because yeah. because Israel at this point is not a monarchy. It's not a democracy. It is a what's called a theocracy. It is God's people under God's rule in God's place. They are to do what God says. And so the question is, Moses led us just fine under God's rule. He listened to God perfectly, wrote the law, gave us the covenant. Yeah. He 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 was God's representative on earth. So we knew how to be in God's government because we had Moses as our leader. 
So now the biblical author is going through great pains mm-hmm. to show us that Joshua is that new leader who hears from God. He's hung out in the tent of meeting, right. hears from God. We're going to see him run into the, the commander of God's army, you know, mm-hmm. later on in Joshua. And like, he always obeys. He always goes out. Like he's doing, he's being God's mediator. Yeah, he's yeah. being God's representative so that Israel could be God's people in God's place. So they could be in God's theocracy. Yeah. Like, I think that is why it's important. I'm just realizing all this. Maybe another way to say it is I've heard enough leadership parables, Mm. like Christian leadership books, Christian Christian entrepreneurship books that look at the story of Joshua and they just try to pull out leadership principles. Be a leader like Joshua. And here's 10 ways that Joshua's a leader that you should lead your people. What you're saying is like, well, the important fact is not the mechanics of how Joshua led. It's that he spent time praying and asking the Lord for direction and waiting on the Lord's hand and his power. Is that what you're saying? That's an implication of what I'm saying. Okay. What I'm saying is that God is providing a man, a, a, a leader, to be over his people, to communicate his will and rule to his people. Because God is invisible. Mm-hmm. And Oh, yes, and yes, like, yes, yes. And if yes. he is the king of his people, he needs a physical ruler over his people to, to carry out his will. And that person, we need to be able to hear from him, uh, to obey him, to trust him, you know, to to represent him accurately. Moses yeah. proved to be that person, right? Uh, all, except for a few little faults. Yep. Yep. Uh, Joshua is being shown to be that person, and that's an important point right there. Yes. It's like Moses failed yes. in a really specific instance at this rock where he was shown to be faithless. Yes, Joshua, he broke faith with God. Joshua is sh- we're. Sh- you're saying Joshua is shown to be faithful over and over again throughout the Exodus story. And in the first couple chapters of Joshua, we'll see the same thing. And he will do what Moses couldn't do. Right. He will go into the land and be God's leader in that place. Yes. Uh, over God's people. Yes. Okay. So we just need, I think, I think I'm finally circling around to my question and finding an answer to it is that it's just like God is going to rule his people in his place. Mm-hmm. But in order to do that, we need someone to do the leading because we're not all able to listen to God, like, because, you know, or at least I should say Israel. Israel was not all able to listen to God. They weren't clean. They weren't obedient. They couldn't go into the tent of meeting because only, uh, you know, only Joshua, you know, or the high priest were allowed in there. And and so they needed someone to listen to God, to hear what he wanted, and then to come out and lead. Yeah. Because, like, God was the king. Yes. And they needed a ambassador from the king to lead them. I was just trying to figure out why is yeah. this leadership thing so important? Right, right, and I think right. this is it. Yeah. And so yeah. He, when Joshua, and Joshua as a good and godly leader provides victory, safety, provision, land, and God's presence for his people. Mm-hmm. Jesus does the same, right? Yes. Like Jesus is Joshua. His yes. name is jo- the new Joshua mm-hmm. comes in and provides safety, leadership, his place, his presence. But what Jesus does is kind of qualitatively different mm-hmm. than what Joshua does. We're told in the very beginning about Joshua's leadership that he is filled with the Spirit. And only the Spirit-filled leader can lead God's people to stay in God's land yes. and listen to God. And like you kind of like corrected yourself, it's like, well, Israel couldn't all listen to the Lord. Right. But what's fundamentally different about Jesus' leadership, so not only does he 
destroy all principalities and powers. Mm-hmm. Not only does he provide us access into the Lord's presence, build that temple within us, he fills us with the same Holy Spirit that Joshua yes. had. At the very end of the book of Joshua, this is important, he kind of repeats what Moses says. He says, you're not going to be able to fulfill everything that God mm-hmm. said. You're going to fail. You're going to fail at this. You're going to, you're going to intermarry with people, and that intermarriage is going to lead to idolatry, and that idolatry is going to lead you to fit, like fall away from the promises of God, and mm-hmm. you spit out of the land just like you spit out all these Amorites and Canaanites. What the Lord does in his leadership is not just clear the land away. He like clears our hearts away. Mm-hmm. He gives us that same Holy Spirit so that we all can be leaders and kings in his kingdom. What is like a nation of like priests and kings? Yes, that's the right. hope yes. of the book of Moses. And so, what Jesus does for us is He not only um, is our leader, He makes us leaders like Joshua, right? And allows us to fulfill the mission the way that Joshua did as well. That's right. He restores the kingship that was originally given to Adam in the Garden of Eden. That's right. To all people, so that we all could go into the tent of meeting and mm-hmm. commune with God like Joshua did, because yes. the tent of meeting has become our very bodies yes. because the Holy Spirit dwells within us. And like Joshua pushed back the darkness and the immorality of the land, we have now been deputized to go into all the world and preach the yes. good news of the gospel, teaching them to obey mm-hmm. the commands of the Lord. Mm-hmm. So what is the hope that like they're obeying the law in the promised land? Jesus deputizes all people, not just one person, to do that, yes. to create a new Eden on the earth, to teach the law of God, to push back sin and create people that will obey him. Yes. And I think what happened was, in, 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 and I don't want to overstate the this case here, but Joshua led, um, whenever they were successful, an obedient people. Mm-hmm. They, right. they were an obedient people, but they had a leader. Yes. And and I think that I I, I want to I don't want to mm. overemphasize our new kingship right, right, to the right. detriment of like I think we're on a really cool trajectory there mm-hmm. to see Jesus as the king, like yes. the leader that we need, the the go between between mm. God and man yeah. who would give us his will, tell us what to do, uh lead us to victory, you know, because he was God himself. Yeah. Jesus is the king that never dies. Yes. That's the important thing about all the leaders in the Old Testament. All the leaders ever. And he the, died. Is They all die. <laughs> and he died, and he died, and he died. Genesis 6. Yeah. And amazingly, yeah. our Lord rises from the dead. Right. He forever rules and acts as a leader for us. Mm-hmm. So like, if there is something special about a leader that like embodies the soul of a nation or a people that can push people towards the ideal of what they were created to be and like how the Lord has designed them to be in God's place. Normally those hopes and aspirations die with the leader. That's why assassination attempts are so prevalent among powerful leaders. When you have a king that can is always ruling that ideal always goes forward. It can never be defeated. Mm -hmm. Like God's always accomplishing his good purposes for redemption, rescue, justice, and the end of darkness. Yes, and always. Yeah. And this tension is in Joshua itself. Mm-hmm. In the middle of Joshua, it's we hear that Joshua is like out of vigor, but the land is at peace. Mm-hmm. But he's like wearing out. Yeah, he's, he's getting old. He's get, he's about to die. And 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 then at the end of Joshua, when he actually does like die, Judges picks up, and it's after the death of uh, after the death of Joshua, and then things just go downhill. 
yeah. because the ideals of this man, the leadership of this man died with him. Yeah. And so Jesus is the leader who never dies. A, is, a is king really good news. holds the kingdom together. Yes. And Jesus is the only king that doesn't die. Yeah. Every other king dies and the kingdom falls apart. Right. Except for Jesus. Yes. Yeah. I, I, I guess I just, I want to pick apart all of this. Uh, I would just, I guess, encourage everyone to go meditate on all the, all the ways that Moses and Joshua led the people of God, mm-hmm. that they communed with God and heard from God and enacted God's policies mm-hmm. and carried out God's law and kept themselves holy. Mm-hmm. Jesus did all these things perfectly. Yeah. Like he, and, and like even just think about the small details. Yeah. He goes away and prays in the morning. Yes. He is in the temple at 10 years old yeah. and like in his father's house, he, uh, speaks new laws from yeah. the mountainside. Right. He oh, fulfills all the law. He obeys it perfectly. Like he is a new Moses. He is a new Joshua obeying and yes. leading his people properly. But like different in kind because yes. he's not God's representative. He is God himself. Yeah. Like in him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell mm-hmm. that we do not need the representative anymore because we have the real thing in mm-hmm. Jesus. Yeah. Like the reason it always broke in whether it was Moses or Joshua or the judges or the kings was because the leader was a representative. But in Jesus, we finally have the real God living with and leading his people here on earth and forever. Okay, so we've talked about who Joshua is and how mm. Joshua is like Moses and how Moses, Jesus is like Joshua, uh, but we really kind of need to like set the groundwork for why go into the land at all? Like, mm. Why is like crossing the Jordan River and getting into the land of Canaan so important to Israel, um, period? Yeah. Uh, and we've hinted at it as, as a new Eden, right. but like, let's get into So like, explicitly, number one, Biblically, theologically speaking, the most important reason why taking the land is a big deal is because it is the New Eden. Like that, that's a gigantic deal. Yes. Um, and most people don't know that about right. Scripture. Like The land of Canaan is supposed to be where God yes. dwells, yes. that you walk with him in the cool of the day again. Like that's a, that's a big deal. It's a huge deal that God is trying to secure a place where he and his people can live together. Like physically on earth. And in the Old Testament, that was like a geographic, yes, place, political, theopolitical border. Yeah. Now, the idea was that once they took the land, then it would grow and cover the face of the earth. Which is what whereas, God promises yes, to Abraham. To a- yeah, to Abraham. Uh, you know, it's like you think of that like, uh, what, what do you call that? Whenever a country goes and like annexes another country and establishes their imperialism. Imperialism. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like imperialism. Yeah. You know, but th- this is like the most gracious form. <laughs> like you actually would want to be assimilated into this kingdom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, and so Eden is a very real part of why taking the land is a big deal. Um, it's probably the biggest part, right. but so, more in the focus of Joshua yeah. is, is God going to be true to his word, which was his promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, that he will take him into the land and he will give them a land. And when they're given the land, he will be fruitful and multiply and all nations will be blessed. So the, the what's on the line here, you know, obviously will, will we ever dwell with God yeah. again? But what's on the line here is, is God's word true? Can God be taken at his word that he promised to Abraham, or yeah. will his promises fail? And then even personally, it's like Israel has functionally been homeless since Eden. Uh, Once they sin, yes. God's people have not had a home. 
Yes. They've wandered in the wilderness. They've been in this land. They've been in that land. Abraham had a couple outposts, and they were in slavery for 400 yes. years. Like they, Since the call, I would say, like, yeah, I, I would say they, they were they were homeless in, in insofar as they did not have a land with God. Mm-hmm. Um, Abraham had a land, mm-hmm. uh, but he was called out of that land. And yeah. from that moment okay, of yeah, calling yeah, yeah. Abraham, he said, leave your, leave your people, uh, your father's house, and all these things, and go into a land that I will show you, is what God says to Abraham. Yeah. And so since that time, they've been nomads. So I want to just think about that. Like, there is no real nation on the earth that I can think of that has a national identity apart from a political border. Yeah, there are some nomadic groups, but yeah. I think they function inside of political borders and yes. ne- maybe necessarily don't aren't tied to a city. So it's just it's just fascinating to me that you have this really strong, cohesive identity as an Israelite, yeah. as a Jew, and for centuries and centuries and centuries you had no home. Right. You had no homeland. You did, but they did. They had a homeland, but it wasn't theirs yet. It wasn't theirs yet. So your they entire would, identity yes. as a people is is knowing you are homeless and waiting to get the home. That's right. So like in Egypt for 400 years, the story, the foundational founding father's stories of their nation is the realization that they are homeless and nationless and know that they're promised a home. Right. And they don't have it yet. Yeah, their 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 national identity was tied up in the fact that this land of Canaan would one day be theirs, mm-hmm. but it wasn't yet. Yeah. Which is just like just like we just I, let me just draw a straight line real quick to Go be like it. that is how we live today as Christians. Yeah. Like we know that we will inhabit the new heavens and the new earth with God, mm-hmm. but we just don't have it yet. Yeah. And it's like, we are homeless. We, I mean, like, the New Testament calls us sojourners and strangers and aliens on this earth yes. because we like Israel are identified nationally by where we will one day inhabit, but we don't have it yet. It's like we we're dual citizens, yes. but only one of our citizenships is actualized. Like it's like yeah. physically real. Right. So it's like, yes, we're American citizens, right. Chinese citizens, but we're also citizens of the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is coming, but not yet yeah. around. It's not yet in America. Yeah, it's and, you're not supposed yet to let, in and you're supposed to let that prolaptic or like that future kingdom citizenship overshadow, dominate, control the one that feels more real, the American citizenship. And so I think Israel probably got that identity far better than we do because yes. our national identity is really strong. We have a really yeah. strong, we have strong leaders, strong forms of government. Like ideologically, mm-hmm. we're bound together by certain cultural values and whatever else. It's the air, it's the air we breathe. It's the air we breathe. So yeah. for Israel to to never be in the homeland that they were promised. Physically. Physically. Yes. Is like all... They hope like, that's what they hope for. Yes. That's the air they breathe. Like the way that we breathe, in America breathe individual rights yeah. and freedom. They long one day we will be home. Yes. And so that's what's on the line here yeah. as they are entering the land is will they have a home? Will God be good to his promises? Will they ever be in God's place uh, under God's rule again? Yes. Like that's what the hope is for this land. And specifically, God promised them the land of Canaan. Yes, specifically. So, specifically. So they always knew geographically beyond the Jordan River that was supposed to be theirs. Yeah. And as we mentioned before, they were 
victims of circumstance and the oppression of uh, Pharaoh and whatever else, but they were also waiting for God's timing. Yes. As Genesis As 15, Genesis 16. 16 said. Yep. They were waiting for the iniquity of the Amorites to be yep. fulfilled. Abraham was told they would go into uh, slavery, into a nation they don't know for 400 years. Yeah. And so they've been waiting. They've yeah. been waiting. Yep. yep. Um, and so before, because that, that leads kind of neatly to like this idea of harem, which mm-hmm. is the kind of like people confused with genocide fairly frequently. But before we get there, okay. the promise of the land yes. is... That's what we're. At. That's what they're after. That's the hope. That's the hope. But all yes. not simply possession of the land, rest from their enemies. Rest in the land. So like back to the Garden of Eden. Yes. God, they worked for six days and then rested that's, on the that's seventh. What God, that's, the, that's, that's, what, that's what God did. That's what God did. He yes. rested on the seventh, and since that day, they've been in, Israel has been in patterns of work and rest, work and rest. Probably except for the time they were in Egypt, where that was interrupted potentially. Like, uh, uh, who no, knows? we're not we're not given Sabbath commands before the Mosaic Law. We're just told we're that told the Mosaic that, Law points back yes. to it. Like, this is the way that we, we have should no be. evidence that Israel was doing those things, okay. or that that Seth or you know any of their right, descendants right. were engaging those patterns. I think what we were supposed to see in the Eden narrative is um, God worked for six days. And then rested, mm-hmm. and then we hear the story of man—that man is working inside of God's rest, mm, right, right? Which we've talked about. As the yes, film, like, that is yeah. perpetual Sabbath. Mm-hmm. That we can—that there is a marriage of work and rest yeah. that is beautiful and satisfying, and like our that, work is our rest, and our rest is our work. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. yes, and and yeah, we—they're not in conflict. And that was Eden. That was Eden. Yes. And but so outside of Eden, outside of Eden, God is God through the Sabbath commands is trying to give fallen humans some semblance of that work rest balance. Right. Work for six days. Toil for six yeah, days. Rest yeah. for a day. Right. But like rest, you know, yeah. and like yeah. And so so yes. So the the but it's you can't rest when you are when you don't have a home. Mm-hmm. There's nowhere to rest. Uh, you can't rest when you're a slave. Mm-hmm. because you have to work every day. You can't rest whenever you don't have your own fields, whenever mm-hmm. you don't, like, you right. have to have a place in and order to rest. And then you can't rest if you're constantly under threat from other enemies. That's right. If if there's toil on every side or, or, or what, what's the word, torment on every side? Or oh, I, I can't know. remember. I'm trying to remember. But anyway, yeah. you have enemies on every side yeah. all around you. And yeah, you can't rest when that's going on either. Yeah. So they're, they don't have a home. They don't have farms. They don't have houses. They don't have vineyards. So they need a place to rest. But then also they need peace to rest. There yes. needs to not be warring uh, nations trying to kill them while they're laying their heads on their pillows. Right. And so the promise that God gives to Israel is both for a land and for that rest. That's right. And yeah. what he says is, uh, it's like, I want to find the cities that we did not plan here. He says, I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities that you had not built and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. And then he goes on to say that now they are at rest from their enemies. Oh, it's on verse uh, 8 and 9. Of Joshua what? Of Joshua 24. Okay. Uh, There's rest from your enemies. Yes. The, The promise is a land... And then you don't even have to cultivate the land. It was already planted. You, you don't have to build cities. They were already you built. You don't have to cultivate an orchard for multiple years. Yeah. You can just be in the land yep. and be at rest. It's rest. Yeah. 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 It's like you uh, not only, I'm not going to just take you to a plot of land where you have to construct a house. Yes. Uh, you're going to move into a fully furnished apartment <laughs> and there, and you have, and there's like food on the table already. Yes. Yeah. It's a uh, similar 
but much less it's it's much greater than what i just experienced i i just moved oh yes and there was a moving moving company that put all my things out for me <laughs> yeah so it was like i had this expectation that i have to do all this unpacking and do all this kind of stuff and i had to do a little bit of that but like i could just rest because mm-hmm. they did most of the work right and so like the lord's provided me much better than my moving company did <laughs> but like that's like anyway yes um and so i mean the the good news here for us um is is that jesus is finally bringing us into the land like that there is a land that Jesus is bringing us to. I mean, you think about what he said in John. That, when we say land with mm-hmm. Jesus, uh, yeah, we mean... I'm getting there. Okay, sorry. Yeah. So okay. in John, in John, he says, I'm going to my father's house to prepare a place for you. In my father's house, there's lots of space. Mm-hmm. You know, there's unlimited yeah. space. Yeah. Um, and Jesus said that he's going to return and establish that place. And so when we talk about the land Jesus is going to build for us, it is not that we're going to start over with the Eden Project. We're not going to start over with the Canaanite Project, which would be taking over a small portion of geographical space Mm -hmm. and then cleaning that up and spreading that around the world. Jesus is... It's not like we're going to go somewhere in the middle of Kansas and start a little uh, commune, and that commune is going to grow and grow and grow and grow and grow. It's not even like we're going to get enough... Uh, not, it's not like we're going to get enough Christians in American politics, right. and then our kingdom's going to expand from right. Christian America. That's not that's, that's right. not the hope. No, the hope is that Jesus is actually going to bring the consummation of what Eden hoped for, what Canaan hoped for, and he's going to fill the earth with his glory, Scripture says. He's going to come and he's going to say, behold, I make one part of the world new. No, he's yeah. going to say, behold, I make... All things new. He's going to come and make the whole earth his dwelling place when he returns. In the same way that God provided vineyards and orchards they didn't plant, cities they did not build, land that had already been terraced and landscaped, Jesus is going and preparing a place for us. Mm -hmm. But that preparation, it's like it is actually here on the earth. Yes. And this whole world will become the promised land. This yes. physical world will become the new promised land. Right. And Jesus is getting all the building materials ready. All the cities are being built. All yep. the homes are being built. That's right. And the day that he comes back and destroys our enemies, like Israel destroys the enemies of God, all those cities and vineyards and gardens that Jesus has prepared, like land on Will the be earth. for us. They'll be for us. Yeah. You ever like look at like a fancy resort and you're like, man, I, I wish I was... like. They'll just yeah. be like a place you can go. Well, it also reminds me of Jesus' commands about how everything that's not built on the foundation of him and his words right. will be purged with fire, yep. and only the things that are made with stone will remain. Mm-hmm. It's almost as if like the, the world that we live in as Christians and the organizations we build and the justice we see, yep. like God is building it around us imperceptibly right yep. now. He's preparing that home for us here on the earth while we live on it. Yeah. And then when everything else gets swept away, we're going to see like... The kingdom of God. The kingdom of that, God. That has been ever present. We're going to realize it wasn't like all urban blight yeah. and it wasn't all like drought in, or dust bowls. Yes. It was actually the preparation for new gardens and new cities yeah. and the cities that are already there to flourish and come yes. to life for the first time. One, one, one game, like 
it's like a we called it like a prophetic game. Okay. It, not in like a spiritual way, but yeah. in more like a social justice way. Okay. Uh, that me and some friends used to play in college was we would look at something and say, what will that be used for when the kingdom comes? And we would look at like, we. I remember protesting outside of a bank building, Chase Tower downtown one time because of a corrupt politician and his being in cahoots with this bank. And we were like, we did the stake out for like days. Uh, this is a side of David Bowden. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> and we would just wax eloquently about like, what will this bank building be used for mm. when the kingdom of God comes? Like, well, this is what the prophets do, right? Yes. It, it's exactly what the prophets Swords do. Swords will be turned into plowshares. Plow like, it's like the weapons, the things that we use for destruction on this earth will be used for God's purposes. Yes. And the things that we build that are beautiful on this earth will become even more beautiful yeah. when the Lord returns. So it's just like, that's just, that's what the new heavens and the new earth, I mean, I hate, I hate even say will look like because right. we have done the worst job painting a picture <laughs> of something so good. Um, but hopefully it just stirs your affections for the land that Jesus will bring. And, and maybe to go back to the personal analogy, imagine finally feeling at home. Yeah. I mean, like I'm a missionary kid. Yep. Uh, they call us third culture kids. Mm -hmm. Like we kind of a blend of two cultures and never really feel at home in one. Think about the number of immigrants in our country who fall under the same rubric or even second and third generations who have a ton of ties to one ethnic identity and then also their identity as American right. citizenship. Think about the elusiveness of the so-called American dream. Yes. That you think you're in the perfect place and that if you just had the white picket fence and blah, 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 you would finally be happy and you get it and you aren't. And you aren't. Think about the ways that we feel discontented with our homeland. Yes. Whether like our political tensions are a product of the fact that we don't think this is home yet. Yep. We both have different visions of home mm -hmm. and we're fighting with each other over our vision of home. How to get it. And then one day the Lord will come and make us feel at home. Mm. His land, his kingdom will come and all of us, regardless of our citizenship, regardless of our immigration status, regardless of our political leanings, will feel perfectly at peace, at rest and we can finally be home. So now we're going to leave the beautiful, beautiful pearly gates <laughs> of the new heavens and the new earth, uh, which don't have pearly gates. Um, what? <laughs> <laughs> that scared me. <laughs> A metaphor okay uh you'll have to we'll have to wait till we get to, to revelation. revelation um anyway so i'm deeply offended you should be <laughs> deeply offended we lost so many listeners just now i believe in the pearly gates okay okay i feel better okay i feel safe i'm just gonna leave that there intention great uh <laughs> unresolved tension. unresolved tension. um so let's until the book of joshua until the book of, until the book of revelation <laughs> Uh, we're just we're just stalling. Continue with your thought. David. We're stalling. We're here. stalling. It's uh, fine. so we we've mentioned it a couple times. There's this Hebrew word harem. So your Bible can translate it as a ban, mm -hmm. uh, devoted to destruction. Totally is, destroyed. Totally destroyed is the way that I read it most often. Mm -hmm. um, and it's first found in the book of Leviticus, mm -hmm. right? I think so. Uh, let me make sure that that is correct and find it for us, but. It's not going to be in that book. I wrote it down. Oh, okay. Book. I was uh, just flipping through a single volume of Joshua. And I'm like, let me find it in Leviticus. It's well, your, why don't it's you go ahead notes. and like define it for us? Uh, yeah. So. so the idea of harem, um, 
I would say literally translated is is it's called the ban. You know, yeah. it's it's it is you are not to touch it. It is it is devoted to the Lord. Um, you you are it's taboo, <laughs> right? Yeah, it's yeah. banned. And so um, something like you could you could. Uh, like what would be an example of something that was banned from them other than like before maybe, we talk about complete destruction maybe like the word banished is helpful like because like, in english there's like so like in the garden of eden uh-huh. there was a ban adam and eve were banned, banned from, from the, gar- the garden of eden that, they yes, were they were yes. kicked out of the garden of eden they were in a sense devoted to destruction they were right. devoted to death to death at the gar- at, yes. at the gates of the garden of eden That's so right. the first ban happens in Genesis three. In Genesis, that's three. helpful. That's yes. really helpful. So, um, like, so this can apply to um, there are certain spoils of war that Israel would have inherited um, by nature of their conquest of the land mm-hmm. of Canaan that God said is banned. So instead of taking it for themselves, they are either to completely destroy it, which is one way to keep yourself from touching something yeah. or devote it to the Lord, which is the same idea. It's just two ways to do yeah. it. So you can devote something to the Lord by completely destroying it, sacrificing it, or you can devote it to God by giving it to the, tem- the and, temple. And the there's tabernacle. some instances where like gold is devoted to the Lord. Yes. So if you read the tabernacle, just the description of the tabernacle mm-hmm. in the book of Leviticus, you'll know that a whole bunch of the tabernacle is covered in gold yes. and precious gems. So those spoils could be devoted to the Lord, not for personal use, not for personal gain, but mm-hmm. for the the uh, the honoring of the Lord yes. and his temple and right. proving the point of the tabernacle, that God's presence dwells with his people. That's right. Yes. That's right. Um, so it can go from the spoils of war, mm-hmm. but then it can also go all the way up to the people in the land yes. that they have been devoted to the Lord for destruction because of their sin. Or another way to say it, maybe even softer, would be that they are banned from the land. If this place in Canaan was to be a holy place where God and man could dwell together, it could not be impure, it could not be unclean, it could not be full of sin. This is what Leviticus is all about. Mm -hmm. And so in order for that to take place, these people needed to be banished from the land. They needed to be driven out of the land because of the horrible things that they were doing. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. So you have... The spoils of war can be devoted to the Lord or devoted for destruction. That includes livestock. Yes. Or the people can be destroyed, Mm -hmm. banned from the land. Right. So again, what we're seeing is a parallel to the Garden of Eden. Mm -hmm. In the same way that Adam and Eve were vomited or kicked out of the Garden of Eden, the way that other places in the scripture will say the land vomits them out. The Lord's vomits. They're being kicked out of God's promised Mm -hmm. land. This is God's holy place. And death will rule over them the way that it ruled over Adam and Eve That's right. if they do not uh, submit to the Lord mm-hmm. or obey the Lord or worship Yahweh. And so that's important to add that caveat because actually the first story we hear about, so like, okay, because the the, the the tension, the difficulty there is like, wait, God's telling us to kill everybody in the land? Right. Not everybody. Mm. Because the very first story we have is the story of Rahab. Right. She is a Canaanite. She lives in the land. She has been devoted to destruction, and she has shown mercy. Yes. She is in court, not, and not just shown mercy as a servant or a slave. She becomes part of the kingdom of God. Her and her entire family yes. now inherit and receive the blessing and victory that all of Israel does. Right. So what that should signal to everybody listening, this isn't a ethnic battle. Nope. This isn't a political battle. This is about worshiping Yahweh 
It's about worshiping and obeying God's commands, just like it was back in the Garden of Eden. Yep. And when Rahab, a prostitute, yes, even a prostitute Canaanite, <laughs> like so, like the worst of the worst, <laughs> worst, of the worst. <laughs> like worships the Lord mm-hmm. and is included into the covenant people of Israel, we should know that the harem, the ban, the devotion to destruction is only for those people who refuse to worship the Lord. That's right. That's And that's that's the ban. Yes. And over and over again, we'll see it. It's because intermarrying, intermingling with those people would cause you to lead, like right. lead you away. So there's, let's, let me, let me, let me stop there yeah. and lean into that. So um, there, there, there are in Eden, sorry, in, in, in Canaan, uh, there are an internal, there's an internal and an external threat. So the, um, the internal threat Mm-hmm. Uh, is that the the pollution of the land caused by the Canaanites mm-hmm. and their false worship and their child sacrifice? And we should mention right there yes. before we go on. So we actually have categories for all this back in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Yes. So in Leviticus, we're told that when we go, they go into the land. There's going to be people there who are sexually immoral mm-hmm. and practice child sacrifice. Right. And these people are going to be devoted to destruction. Mm-hmm. So you can go back and read Leviticus 18 and Deuteronomy uh, 29, mm. and, or not 29, Deuteronomy 20, tw- 12. Deuteronomy 12. Deuteronomy 12. Deuteronomy okay. 12, Leviticus 18. And in both those places, it describes that internal threat in the land. Yes. There's this morally corrupt people who are sexually immoral right. and who practice child sacrifice. Right. And they are to be devoted to destruction. That's right. Because the internal threat, what I'm talking about here, mm-hmm. is that if they continue to do those things in the land, especially when you read mm-hmm. Leviticus, you learn that the land will be polluted mm-hmm. and it will be unclean and God will not be able to dwell there because it needs to be a uh, clean place, yes, yes, a yes, ritually yes, yes. clean place. Yes. And so there's an internal threat inside the land that would compromise Israel's ability to commune with God. It would not be Eden, even if there was peace on every side. It's not Eden unless God is there. Right. And so they had to clean up the land from ritual impurity in order for God to be present. There's an external threat as well. Uh, the Canaanites and their practices needed to be utterly destroyed because if, if they weren't, they would tempt the Israelites to abandon Yahweh and start practicing their evil um, rituals as well, yes. that they would start sacrificing their children, which happens later in Israel's history. Yes, and so like there's an internal threat compromising uh, Israel's relationship with God, and there's an external threat um, compromising their um, loyalty to God, their obedience to His commands. So let's summarize where, where we're at so far. Yeah. So harem is a ban, a banishment, a devotion to destruction or to the Lord mm-hmm. because of the faithlessness of the Canaanites and their moral corruption. Yeah, and so it, it's it's there's two things happening in Haran. Yeah. One is punishment. Yeah. But two is purification. And then yes, that's the third category. Yes. So like moral corruption, you have uh whatever else, what did I just said, moral corruption because there's more corruption and because of the impurity that it causes that's right. within the land. Right. And so the reason why the harem is happening is like if God's presence is going to dwell again, Everything that smacks of Genesis three mm-hmm. and the and the disobedience of Adam and Eve, where they chose to uh, define good and evil for themselves yep. and eat of the knowledge of good and evil, needs to be kicked out of the land. Everything devoted to death needs to be kicked out. Yes, and I think this is an important. I think this is thematically important, although it's not necessarily picked up in the book of Joshua. It's like Adam and Eve had a real choice 
to eat of the fruit. Mm-hmm. Like that's the way it's presented as, right. as a choice yes. to do evil, to define good and evil for themselves. And it brought death. Mm-hmm. Fast forward a few hundred years, Leviticus 18 describes what that death looked like. It looked like child sacrifice. It looked like sleeping with your mother-in-law. It yes. looked like all of these ancestral disgusting practices Mm -hmm. and so i think what you're seeing then is the natural result of genesis 3 these are the natural results of the fall they are like the direct line consequences and what should be noted about almost all those sexual relationships mentioned in leviticus 18 is that they literally bring death Mm -hmm. if you have ancestral sex you will often have genetic abnormalities, the child will be unhealthy and often dies. Even homosexuality doesn't bring life from it. So the reason why these are all lumped together is because these items as a whole communicate death. Mm -hmm. They communicate the absence of life and those things must be pushed out if the God of life is to dwell in the land. That's right. That's right. So what, what we're saying here is that God is punishing evil but he's also creating um, a pure place. Yes. Yes. And that's doubled down on by the mm-hmm. fact that the people within the land who used to do those practices can choose to no longer do them, right? worship the Lord, and become part of God's people. Yes. Yes. Yep. Like Rahab did. Like Rahab exactly did. Exactly right. And then even doubling down on that even mm-hmm. further is in the very next chapter after Rahab, mm-hmm. a man named Achan a soldier in Joshua's army, instead of devoting something to destruction, he keeps it for himself. And God says to Joshua, if you keep what is devoted to destruction for yourself, you will be devoted to destruction. Israel will be devoted to destruction. Israel is not um, free from the harem just because of their ethnicity. No. So this is not an ethnic cleansing. No, it's not a genocide. Because clearly God is willing to go against the ethnicity of his own people. Yes. If so, it is clearly a spiritual religious um, thing that's happening yeah. here. Uh, that God it's is about the worship of Yahweh yes, about and Yahweh's the name. obedience to Yahweh. Yeah. Just like in Adam, if if this is a rep, if this is going to the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve disobeyed the Lord's command to eat only from the tree of life and not from the tree of good and evil, and the tree of death brought all or all these practices to do anything devoted to them undoes the Garden of Eden and makes it impossible to live there. That's right. So they must be devoted to destruction if God is going to live in that place. Yes. That's what's happening in the harem. Yes. So (laughs) we'll dive deeper into that in some future episodes whenever we actually get to harem moments. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we'll probably talk about things like uh, everything that breathes, men, women, and children, things like that. So So let's just just, say that more explicitly. Yep. We're told that Joshua actually kills children. Yes. We're told that he kills women and destroys everything that breathes. So that is like so. If we're talking about a God of life, is that compatible with a God of life? Yeah. Like we'll talk about. We'll all talk that. about that more. Hopefully, these categories do give you some some ways to answer those questions yourself now. Yeah. But we will talk about it more. Uh, to land the plane here, as we close the episode, um, how is Jesus the new and better bringer of harem? Hmm. Is a very important question. Yes. So let me. Fr- can I? Can I? Can I be David just for a second? You can be David just. For, okay. Just for a second. So Seth knows what this means. <laughs> so um, I mean, this happened in our community group recently. That um, and um, people were were asking like, so how do I read Joshua? Like, how do I read these commands for God to kill everything that breathes? Um, I just don't know if I can worship a God like that. Mm-hmm. You know, and books have been written 
trying to justify God in this situation. Um, you know, like Paul Copan's um, Is God a Moral Monster? Yeah. And that's a great book. Mm-hmm. Highly recommend. Um, but um, we, and you can answer those questions, and we will. We'll talk about them. Yeah. But this is the challenge I give. Mm-hmm. I gave to my community group. Um, this right. is my being David for a second yeah, here. Yeah. I was like, y- you claim to worship Jesus, who we're told uh, is, the, is the, and who on his very lips talks about a heaven and a hell, like a place of eternal bliss with God in the new heavens, the new earth, and an eternal lake of fire where everyone who doesn't believe in him will be cast forever. And I was like, how can you as a Christian be comfortable with that, but be disturbed by the conquest of Canaan? Yeah. I was like, I think it's you, you have a problem of degrees here that like... If this is offensive yes. to you, if the conquest narratives are, to, are, are offensive to you, what you're really saying is that the idea of heaven and hell right. is offensive to you. Because if Canaan is a picture of the new heavens and the new earth, and the ban is a description of what the Lord does to those that disobey him. Mm-hmm. And that's a smaller picture of what God does globally. A much smaller picture and, and throughout all time. Eternally, mm-hmm. you probably didn't understand what you were buying into right. in Christianity or in the to first put it, place. Or to put it another way, that um, I like when you think about God and you think about Jesus, Jesus is this, this self-sacrificing God who loves us and is bringing us to himself. This is all true, everything I've just yes, said, yes. 100%. Um, I just don't see how that God could mm. do that thing. <laughs> you, yeah. you have an How does Im- the Jesus die for me, yes. demand the death of children? Right. Yeah. And it's like, well, you don't understand why he died, <laughs> because there was a harem against you. Like the, yes. to not To misunderstand harem or to devalue it is to completely miss the point of the cross, that Jesus was haremed for us. Yeah. Jesus was devoted to destruction. So you didn't have to be. That the closest yeah. a Christian ever has to get to the harem of God is reading about it in Joshua. Yeah. Like that's a big deal. Like and 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 there there's there's ways to talk about this that are just really good news too. Yeah. That like Jesus is going to bring justice to the earth that all the things that are evil and wicked and that, that pollute the earth and hurt uh, people psychologically, physically, sociologically. It, and like we talked about, like the pollution of the land, like our business practices poison the land, yes. like our nuclear facilities explode and yes. like make huge tracts of land uninhabitable. Like right. you can't go, uh, what's the nuclear facility that blew up in Russia? What's oh, uh, uh, Chernobyl. Chernobyl, like yeah. you still can't go there. Like right. the land has been poisoned. Yes. <laughs> yeah. We've haremed ourselves. We've haremed ourselves in the same way. <laughs> we banished ourselves from parts of the yeah. land that become yeah. uninhabitable because of our own sin. Yeah. And so Jesus is going to come and he's going to judge those things. He's going to drive them out of this world in order to purify it. Like, mm-hmm. and I don't mean that in like some yeah. kind of weird cleanse it kind of thing. Like, yeah. uh, I just think of like uh, Ronan from. Uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, oh. <laughs> where he's like, cleanse it. <laughs> yes. It just means kill everybody. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. not what's happening here. Yeah. God is cleaning it like, and making it inhabitable for goodness and right. beauty and rest and shalom. Like, and again, you, I think you said it right. The Lord, there is a ban coming. Mm-hmm. There's a devotion to destruction coming. Yes. But the first story we read about in the book of Joshua before the harem yes. is the story of Rahab. Right of a woman, a prostitute, a Canaanite, devoted to destruction, 
finding a home with the people of God. Mm-hmm. And the way that she secures for herself that harem, that, that freedom rescue from harem, is essentially by selling out her own people, yeah. selling out the Canaanites, by de- allowing the Canaanites to be devoted to destruction, but but firstly by professing faith, faith. in Yahweh. Yep, she says, in I, God. I know that Yahweh is the one true God. Yes. And what ends up happening, so like, yes, we have we have two Je- Jesuses. We have the Jesus who has promised to come and ban, mm-hmm. but we also have the Jesus who's promised to come and die. Yes. And the pr- Jesus who's promised to come and die comes first. Yes. In the biblical narrative, in the story of creation, in the story of redemption, Jesus that saves comes before the Jesus that destroys. That's right. And so we can trust in that Yahweh. Yeah. And that Yahweh is unlike that Joshua. Jesus mm-hmm. is better than Joshua yes. because he is willing to be devoted to destruction himself. That's right. And save everyone. everyone. <laughs> If they would trust in him. Yeah. And over and over again throughout Joshua, we see the kings are offered an opportunity to repent. Yes. Yet their hearts are hardened. What I love about the cross when we talk about harem and how difficult it is to talk about is that Jesus's justice does not demand of the world something that he is not willing to demand of himself. Yeah. That he says, you will be devoted to destruction for your sin. But Jesus first said, because of your sin, I will devote myself to destruction. Yeah. Like, like, God is willing to die. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. You can't be mad at it. Like, how can you love a God that, that, that is willing to devote people to destruction? Because that same God devoted himself to destruction for you so yeah. that you wouldn't have to be. Like, yeah. that's how you can love a God like that. Yeah. Like, because he's so good and so loving. I feel in this moment... When we're talking about this. We've talked about Holy War a couple different times. You yeah. go back and listen to our podcast and those. I always feel like I'm inadequately answering the objections mm. that people have towards these passages and inarticulately explaining why Jesus is still good news. Mm. Uh, but I say that to say if you're listening and still f- you feel angry with us yeah. for the things that we intimated, insinuated, said halfway, like in an inappropriate way, I, what I want to challenge you with is the fact that the book of Joshua should be good news. Yes. And to whatever extent the book of Joshua is good news, there's better news in Jesus. Mm -hmm. And to whatever extent the book of Joshua feels offensive, it's more offensive in Jesus. So like if if you're struggling with the way that we're talking about it, good yeah because that means you're actually wrestling with the claims of jesus for the first time or like in a new light Mm -hmm. and so like i would just encourage you stick with us and even though stick with us stick with your bible yeah stick with reading stick with researching stick with listening because i think you'll learn to love jesus more um by studying joshua that's really good i think that's one of the most helpful things we've said (laughs) (laughs) or you said that's very good uh what i thought you were going to say which i guess i'll put my closing remark on go for it is um when you read the book of joshua and it's offensive to you um let that be a moment for you to be shown not why the bible is offensive and weird but why you and your worldview are actually offensive to God and weird to his way of doing things. That maybe you actually love 
the fact that sin is in this world too much. <laughs> Maybe you don't know how offensive uh, like child sacrifice is in the eyes of God or sin is in the eyes of God. Yeah. Um, like let the places that Joshua makes you feel uncomfortable highlight things within your worldview that are just incorrect and that God wants to come and kindfully rebuke. Um, that's what difficult stories do. They help us inhabit God's world instead yeah. of our own because they yeah. challenge us in really unique ways. Yeah. And so um, that's hopefully what the book of Joshua will do for us as we walk through it. Joshua is a good book to do that. It's like there's a different worldview, a different culture in the kingdom of heaven. Mm -hmm. And the book of Joshua really rubs against our, the kingdom of Western industrialized, yeah. modern liberal countries. Like, right. And it's a really good exercise in cultivating a biblical worldview in a biblical imagination yeah and so yeah it's really good and uh i guess i'll, I'll end with this just because it popped in my head okay. i have to say it so um now what do you do when you close this podcast and it's all over uh one thing you can do is know that the conquest is still going on today but it's not we don't do it through crusades and weapons or any or, or nationalism or anything like that yeah we do it not with weapons made by man but by dismantling any thought that sets itself up against Jesus. This is what Paul yeah. says, is that we preach the good news yeah. that Yahweh has come and defeated the curse yeah. and was haremed for us yeah. and that people can escape the coming harem yeah. and be grafted into the people of God. Yeah, because of Jesus, we actually should feel uncomfortable mm -hmm. with the way, with um, harem by the sword. So I think it's so it's really telling that when Jesus sends out his disciples teaching and proclaiming, and then even when Jesus returns as a, war, a warrior, where does the sword come from? His mouth. His mouth. It's his word that mm -hmm. brings uh, punishment, yep. not violence. That's right. Um, his word is violent, and we'll, we'll right. unpack that. Yep. But like, it's the word, yep. not the sword. Yep. It's good. So. Obviously, there's a lot more we want to talk about. Yes. But um, this will be a hairy book to get through. But I think there's really good news for us on the other side. I'm really excited about that. So, um, Seth, thanks for wrestling with me today. That was really good. Yeah. Uh, thank you guys for wrestling with us. Um, stick with it. Uh, Josh was a good book, and we're very excited to walk through it, uh, walk, walk, walk through it with you. Um, so thank you for trusting us and being on this journey with us. And, uh, yeah, we appreciate you all for listening, and we will see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Spoken Gospel Podcast. Spoken Gospel is a nonprofit that gives all its resources like this podcast away for free because of supporters like you. To help Spoken Gospel in our mission to speak the gospel out of every corner of scripture and view all our free resources, visit SpokenGospel.com.